have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmella. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode 12, The HMS Wager. Carmella, would you like to learn about the ship some call HMS Cannibal? Um, yes. Is the sum just you? Even worse, I'm afraid. The sum is the Daily Mail. <laughs> okay, right. Reputable sources here, folks. Yeah, I am afraid to say I have somewhat cannibalism baited you there. Oh, is this a Carmella style there was no cannibalism? No, no, there is some cannibalism, but as you and our dear listeners might have noticed by now, we are starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel when it comes to well-documented survival cannibalism cases. Mm-hmm. Like... We know there are more out there, we just can't get our grubby little hands on the documents for them. We want more diaries. Come on, people, write it down. Release them to the public, please. Release the cannibalism cut. (laughs) Or just a research grant. If anyone's listening who has the power and the money for that, then hit us up. You have our contact details. And if you've got an attic in Nantucket, Find George Pollard's account. I know it's there. (laughs) HMS Cannibal. HMS Cannibal. We digress. So when I was researching HMS Cannibal, aka HMS Wager, because HMS Cannibal would be a bit on the nose even for the Royal Navy. You'd be like, ugh, can't believe luck there. What a coincidence. I'm not going to lie, I did look up whether the Royal Navy had named a ship HMS Cannibal. It does seem like the sort of thing they'd have done, but they seem to have actually had some restraint. As far as I can find, there is no HMS Cannibal. So far. Yet. But when I come across this ship, HMS Wager, and I find references to murder, mutiny, cannibalism, betrayal... Yeah, yeah! You have that, oh, hello, moment. And then, as you're paging your way through the research books, Carmella, you know what this is like. Mm -hmm. It's, guys, you're really running out of chances for your cannibalism here. If, If I was writing this, you'd have started about 20 pages ago. Oh, what do you mean? They've reached the end. Now, like I've said, there is cannibalism but not nearly as much as you might think. So hopefully, the fact that this story is absolutely batshit (laughs) will make up for HMS Wager's subpar serving of survival cannibalism. Oh, well, I do enjoy a batshit story. And this story is pretty wild. We start in 1740. England is, surprise, surprise, at war with Spain. No. And Wager is purchased from the East India Company to be converted into a store ship. She's then fast-tracked into a special programme. Ooh. Gifted and talented. (laughs) She, and I quote, is to be used to annoy and distress the Spaniards. (laughs) What a job, but someone has to do it. That was an actual order. That was a sentence (laughs) in an actual admiralty document. Go and piss off the Spanish. (laughs) Wager isn't alone. There is a fleet of eight ships being led by Commodore George Anson to go on this pissing off the Spanish voyage. Now, 
This expedition is going badly before they even leave England. They can't find enough men. They can't find enough annoying men. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you'd think it wouldn't be that hard. (laughs) But where are they looking? There There are plenty of men in England. I'm aware that I've... I myself have met at least some. (laughs) And those that have been met have been plenty annoying. (laughs) But I don't know, maybe there's a dearth of annoying men in 1740. I mean... As the song goes, where have all the good men gone? And it's clearly 1740. I see. The way they get around there not being enough men is that they literally hoist outpatients from Chelsea Hospital, the Army Hospital, aboard the ships. Cool. 259 men, most between the ages of 60 and 70, the old, the infirm and the wounded military outpatients make up the, quote, whore of invalids. Hmm. This is interesting. Other than those who desert... The entire corps of invalids die on the voyage. Oh, that's less... Well, I mean, still interesting, but um, not in the same way. They were 70-year-old men without most of their limbs who yeah. were literally hoisted onto ships because they couldn't walk. Yeah, you'd think that people could have foreseen that. But... um, This is the British Navy we're talking about. <laughs> So that's not a great start. Wager is not only carrying invalids, an extra 142 people to her 160 hold, but she's also got extra provisions because she was set up initially as a store ship, so she's got provisions for the whole squadron. Well, that's good. That's That implies that there will be no need to turn to cannibalism. Oh, ye of little faith. <laughs> So it's all off to a great start. And then the captain of Wager, Captain Kidd, well, he dies. Okay, of what? Death. (laughs) It doesn't seem overly relevant to this story. (laughs) In fact, I'm not actually sure it was recorded. He just sort of dies. 18th century death disease. That's the one. So it's bye-bye, Kidd, and hello, Cheap. Cheap? David Cheap. Now, is that cheap like a bird or cheap like Poundland? Cheap like Poundland. Cool. Nice. Captain Poundland is from a different ship. The 47-year-old Scottish First Lieutenant is now the acting captain of HMS Wager. Oh. Now, before the main drama of Wager begins if you don't count the kidnapping of the Chelsea pensioners out of their beds. <laughs> It's important to note that there is an unbelievable amount of scurvy aboard. I think I can believe the amount of scurvy. Pretty much everyone has scurvy at this point. I can believe that. Despite the fact that they're overburdened and overcapacity, there are hardly enough people to man the ship. So they packed it full of provisions, but those provisions were not, like, enough lemon juice. Meat. <laughs> And monster, I'm thinking, what do annoying men take on a road trip? But, hey, the show must go on. And by go on, I, of course, mean get separated from the rest of the squadron and then smash into the south coast of America. It happens. Wager is doing okay given her circumstances around Cape Horn and off South America. Chilly side, mm-hmm. aka the Pacific side, aka the less well charted in the 1700s side, aka the more Spanish bit. Uh oh. She's doing well given the circumstances. But then, in bad weather on the 14th of May, land is spotted to the west. Quote, Thus shattered and disabled, and a single ship, we had the additional mortification to find ourselves bearing for the land on the lee shore. That's so embarrassing, really mortifying. A.K.A. the weather's bad, we're losing a fight to the wind, 
and as we turn our course, we end up, quote, driving bodily into Wager Island. Well done. Is, um, so if these are Spanish infested waters, is Wager Island Spanish owned at this point or they're just loitering about the sea? They're just loitering about the sea. Okay. But if we very loosely look at the history of empire in South America, Spain, not friends with England, has Chile. Mm -hmm. Portugal, sort of friends with England at this point. Brazil. Please tell me you can hear the quotation marks in this next bit. The nearest piece of land that is owned by Britain is the Caribbean. Yeah. So Wager's a little bit friendless on this uncharted, rocky bit of coast. Oh, and important to note, Wager Island isn't like a massive coincidence. They do name it after. That was my assumption, but you're right. I mean... The boat's called Cannibal, and then they smash into an island that's called the same thing, Cannibal Island. We've had some successful shipwrecks where everyone gets off and gets supplies and, you know, toddles on on their merry way. Not this one. Captain Chi actually falls down a ladder and dislocates his shoulder almost before the crash has happened. Oh dear, Captain Cheap. So he's out of commission. And, quote... Several poor wretches who were in the last stage of scurvy and who could not get out of their hammocks were immediately drowned. The passive voice there is a bit concerning. By whom? <laughs> I think just the ocean. <laughs> it just sounds like they're like, fuck, we're crashing, quickly drown them. <laughs> I mean, I think they were probably the lucky ones. Yeah. Such good fortune to be dying of scurvy than to drown in the shipwreck. Brief shout out here to Mr Jones. Hello, Mr Jones. This story doesn't really have any heroes, but I'm going to give Mr Jones a good, like, you tried sticker. An achievement award. Exactly. Because Mr Jones had previously survived another shipwreck. Ooh. And as everyone's being a little bit, well, we're fucked, aren't we? He raises a rallying cheer and calls to the despondent crew that, My friends, let us not be discouraged. Did you never see a ship amongst the breakers before? Come, lend a hand. That is very rousing. And it works. <laughs> Everyone who'd previously just been going, well, we're going to die, aren't we? They rally together. They do something. And it keeps them going. He's like, these newbies haven't even been on a shipwreck before. Later, it would turn out that Mr Jones, well, he actually thought everyone was fucked. <laughs> he, quote, thought that there was not the least chance of a single man's being saved, but decided that the best thing to do was to give people hope. Yeah, you've got to try, haven't you? Ten out of ten for optimism. We will never hear of Mr. Jones again. Oh. But he did well then. Well done, Mr. Jones. The next morning, the storm breaks. And while some of our crew are like Mr. Jones and want to make the best of it, quite a few just YOLO it up and, quote, grew very riotous. Oh. Broke open every chest and box that was at hand, stove in the heads of the casks of brandy and wine, and got so drunk that some of them were drowned on board and lay floating about the decks for some days after. <laughs> That's one way to go out, I guess. It's the raft of the Medusa without a raft. <laughs> so it's clear that Wager has crashed into... A landmass. It's unclear at this point if it's an island or whether it's an outcrop. But some people want to make their way to land. Others want to get pissed on the wrecked ship. Which one? It's a real choose-your-own-adventure. Where are we going, dear listeners? Should we stay on the ship or should we go to land? 
Well, we're going to go for land for now because there's been a um, slight breakdown in discipline. Slight? While some people, about 145, make their way to land, the rest have a mutinous little time on the wreck of wager. They get drunk, they dress up in officers' clothing, <laughs> they fight, they just generally dick about until the ship sinks. <laughs> yep. Well, look, if you're going to hire the most annoying men you can find, this is just what's going to happen. <laughs> oh, and because Wager was carrying supplies for other ships as well, there's even more alcohol than there would be normally. Nice. They name their new home Wager Island. And among my favourite naming conventions, they look at a nearby mountain. Well, that's Mount Misery. <laughs> you know, mood. But let us turn to food. Let us. Or rather, the lack of it. What's been brought from the wreck comes to the sum total of, quote, two or three pounds of biscuit dust. And that was for how many men again? 145. Yeah, it's fine. Especially because added to this is one seagull <laughs> and some wild celery. Ooh, I mean, it creates a nice balanced meal. Exactly. They turn this into, quote, a kind of soup. It's a kind of soup, certainly. Which resulted in painful sickness, violent retchings, swoonings and other symptoms of being poisoned. I really have a question about how you can make those three ingredients poison you. Was the seagull quite old? <laughs> I assumed they killed it fresh. Ah, we do actually know oh. how they managed to poison themselves. The biscuit powder had been stored in a tobacco bag. Ah. The tobacco still in it. Mmm, ooh, delicious. However, the wild celery did cure the scurvy. Hey! Small mercies. In only a few days, law and order seems to have completely broken down. There were reports of thefts and murders taking place almost immediately on the beach, most likely over food, and to make this whole situation even better, corpses have started washing up. Well, that is better because it solves the food problem. Finally, we have a sensible decision being made. Not quite cannibalism. But, quote, when the bodies of our drowned people were thrown among the rocks, the turkey vultures were, quote, killed in order to make a meal of them. Ah, sort of like the fishing thing, but with birds instead of fish. Exactly. We are finally using the bodies as bait. I know, that's it's your favourite trope in survival media. It's my second favourite. Obviously, <laughs> everyone knows it's gastronomic incest. It's my favourite trope. <laughs> Let's not become a parody of ourselves. But, <laughs> however, this was, quote, by no means proportional to the number of mouths to be fed. Mm. So there were various other attempts at finding food. Mostly birds, limpets, mussels and shellfish. The standard deserted island things. There's even a bit of order established, oh. with Captain Cheap creating a storage tent. Although it is a week before the store tent, which has to be guarded at all times against thieves, is able to start actually distributing food. Mm, I can imagine. Oh well, at least you're trying cheap. Oh, just wait. Oh, okay. But now, ding ding ding, it's cannibalism on the beach time. Yay! It's a new cocktail recipe. I think you're trying out. It's a cross between a Bloody Mary and a Sex on the Beach. <laughs> now, it's a bit blink and you'll miss it. So I'll read the passage in full. And slowly. <laughs> a boy, when no other eatables could be found, having picked up the liver of one of the drowned men, whose carcass had been torn to pieces by the force with which the sea drove it among the rocks, was with difficulty withheld from making a meal of it. Those who were less alert, or not so fortunate as their neighbours, 
perished with hunger or were driven to the last extremity. So they prevented the boy from eating the liver. But others who were less alert were driven to the last extremity. I'm confused by what they're trying to say there. So the boy has a liver and is prevented by others from eating it. Yes. Those who were less alert or not as fortunate as their neighbours were driven to the last extremity. So the people who were alert are those who said, no, don't eat that liver. But if you don't have someone saying, no, don't eat that liver... But the people who were less alert were the ones driven to the last extremity. This is all the cannibalism you're going to (laughs) get. I agree with you, Alex. I think that you're interpreting it correctly, but I don't think that they worded it very well. I love that you say that, because right at the end, we're going to come to who wrote this. Okay. (laughs) Now, I'm sure that there was more survival cannibalism than this. Absolutely. Just undocumented. In fact, a load of second-hand sources say that there's further evidence of survival cannibalism, that other corpses were eaten, and that even some of the men who'd been buried were exhumed to be consumed. Ooh, I like that. That's nice. Good. It's a fun little one. But I can't find anything in the first-hand sources other than the cabin boy who tried to eat a liver and those who were driven to the last extremity. I'm imagining it like, you know when your dog's got something in its mouth, you're like, spit it out, drop it, drop it! (laughs) (laughs) Safe to say, things are going quite badly for the survivors. And they have to make a choice as to what they're going to do next. It's another choose-your-own-adventure moment. What are the options? Eat bodies or don't eat bodies? I choose eat bodies. (laughs) (laughs) We know. (laughs) You won't be surprised to hear that some men just desert straight away or that the bedraggled survivors are visited by some locals. So it's not a deserted island. These people have canoes. Ah, from the mainland, I see. And come and see what these stupid people are doing here. Fair enough. Exactly who the locals are is unclear. Our sources are not exactly generous in terms of either 18th century geography or racial tolerance. Yep. And some items are traded. They're even given a bit more food. Up until the annoying men start trying to get it off with the local women. And they all just decide, well, we've had enough of helping you. And they fuck off. Very right of them. They are living up to their reputation of being annoying. Yeah. Items are slowly being recovered from the wreck, including, most important of all, the ship's boats. That is important. There are four. A longboat, which can hold 35 men. A cutter, about 12. A barge, again 12. And a yawl, seven. Even with a good few deaths and desertions, that maths doesn't quite add up. There are at least a hundred survivors at this point. I added it up to about 66. Was that correct? I didn't even attempt the maths. Well, if you're listening at home and my maths is wrong, I'm very sorry. (laughs) They can't stay on Wager Island. But there's only one choice to make. The question of direction. Do they go north? try and catch up with the rest of Anson's fleet? Perhaps seize a Spanish vessel and do something incredible for king and country? Or do they somehow plan to navigate around the Cape without proper equipment, round up the Atlantic Ocean and attempt to make land in Brazil, Portuguese at the time, or the Caribbean, British at the time? Again, inverted commas. Cheap wants to head north. Pretty much everyone else wants to head south. Could they... They don't want to go just to Chile that's nearer because of the Spanish, right? They don't want to just do that so they don't die. Not an option? They wouldn't really be treated very well by the Spanish. No, but they might not starve to death. They're not going to starve to death. They're Englishmen. (laughs) Apart from all the ones who already starved to death. 
They took the coward's way. Hmm, am I going north or south? I think north. I'm going north. Ah, you're on Team Cheap. I think I am. So it's possible to have some sympathy for Cheap's plan here. Although it is worth pointing out that those ships of the rest of the fleet are on like a good two, three, four weeks head start. And they're presumably faster than a longboat. And Cheap does want to seize a Spanish ship. Yeah, no, I I did think that that one was punching a bit a bit above their capabilities at the moment. But there is a slight reasoning for this. The British Navy aren't exactly big on their officers not following orders. While the common understanding goes that once a ship has sunk, the men are no longer being paid, so they're no longer under Navy discipline. Mm -hmm. Not the case for officers. Officers are on half pay, so still have to do their bloody jobs. Oh, interesting. Ten years after the wreck of the wager, Admiral John Bing would face a court-martial and would be shot on the deck of his own ship for failing to do his utmost in battle because he had elected not to run a suicide mission and condemn his men to certain death. Yeah, okay. So you can possibly see why Cheap is so hell for leather for continuing the mission. Doesn't want to get executed. However, he is very stubborn and not very popular and then he does something very, very stupid. What does he do? He shoots a man in the face. <laughs> That's not going to help your popularity. After overhearing a quarrel between the purser and a drunken and insubordinate shipman called Crozens, Cheap, quote, ran out of his hut with a cocked pistol and without asking any questions, immediately shot him through the head. <laughs> I mean, they do say shoot first, ask questions later. And uh, that was quite literal. After shooting Crozens, Cozens, I'm not quite sure. He's dead, he doesn't know. He then doesn't allow him to be treated or even moved from where he fell. Cozens would die 14 days after being struck in the cheek. Oh, that's not a pleasant lingering death, is it? Cheap's authority is, pardon the expression, shot. <laughs> Boo! I say pardon the expression, I'm not sorry. Not surprisingly, there's a mutiny. Wow! It's probably more about Cheap's leadership and determination to go north than the death of Cozens, but it's certainly a rallying cry. Mm. It actually gets a bit Looney Tunes here at parts. And this is mutiny number two. Mutiny number two. Just for the record. There is a fantastic moment when someone lays a trail of gunpowder by Cheap's hut and they plan to try and blow it up. <laughs> but in the end, the mutiny takes place in a more traditional manner on the morning of October the 9th. Remember, they were wrecked on the 14th of May. They've yeah. been there a while. Anyone would get sick of each other after that long. That morning, the mutineers, quote, Surprised to the captain in bed, disarmed him, and took everything out of his tent. Ah, oh, that's a nice um, breakfast in bed morning greeting. I don't know what your breakfast in bed <laughs> are like. I'm just picturing like surprise. Oh wow, you. Oh no. Oh, you're tying me up with rope. Yeah. He gets a bit sassy actually. He calls one of the mutineers captain. For the 18th century listeners, that is sassy as fuck. Yeah, yeah. At first, the plan is to take Cheap, Captain Poundland, back as prisoner to England in the longboat. However, to nearly everyone's agreement, Cheap was actually prepared to stay behind on Wager Island with two loyal men. At least she's got two mates, I guess. And then the rest of the party would split. On Tuesday the 13th, at approximately 11 o'clock, mm -hmm. why they can give us the exact time to the second but not know where they are, I feel is a deep embodiment of the 18th century navy. 
but at that point, quote, the whole body of people embarked to the number of 81 souls, 59 on board the longboat, on board the cutter 12, and in the barge 10. Three men, and the yawl, are left behind on shore. It's more men than are supposed to be on those boats, but it's not too many more. It just about works. They've whittled their numbers down sufficiently. This is where we turn into a choose-your-own-adventure narrative. I've been choosing my own adventure the whole way through, but okay. And I've just been ignoring all of your choices and going with the story as it actually happened. Wow, this is a shit game. (laughs) But now, Carm, I promise I will listen. Okay. Who would you like to go with first? The boat or the island? Ooh. Oh no, the decision's too much. I can't bear it. Let's go with the boats. The boat. I'm glad you said that. That's next on the page. Oh, the illusion of choice. <laughs> I was like, shit, I don't know where the island is. I'll have to flip through my script. The boat. The long boat, which has been named the Speedwell. Okay. Which I feel is a very modern name. It doesn't feel very 18th century. It feels like a 1920s name to a boat that's trying to break the land speed record. Yeah, it sounds like something Gatsby would own. Exactly. But anyway, he doesn't. The Speedwell is setting out to do something incredible. To round the Cape and make it back to safe harbour. As I said, there are initially 81 men. But this isn't the case for long. They are, however, not in for a lot of luck, is anyone in this story, and decide almost immediately to go back for more supplies. Back to the island? Yes. The barge is sent back to Wager Island with nine men aboard to get as many additional supplies as they can carry. There were only 12 days of rations aboard the Speedwell. I just don't think they really thought that through. The chosen men in the barge appear to be loyal to Captain Cheap and disappear. Ah. With the barge. Ah. And then they lose the cutter. Ah. So they're really doing well at cutting down those numbers. But not at acquiring more provisions. Not quite. But if it's not enough to quite literally be losing men, some of them are abandoned, forcibly put ashore, And there's quite a cruel moment in the December of 1741 where eight men are left in the uninhabited Freshwater Bay and they're sent a note basically saying, sorry, the weather was too bad for us to come and pick you up. There's loads of fresh water and and some dogs and some horses. You'll be fine. Were they fine? Or were they never heard from again? Wait for your choose your own adventure. Okay, okay. It doesn't seem overly believable that they were left behind just because the weather got bad. Yeah, probably some kind of argument or just a calculation of numbers. Exactly. Now, for the most part, the men of the Speedwell are dying from starvation. There's no record of any survival cannibalism in this boat. But they probably did it. Exactly. It just seems foolhardy that they didn't. The Speedwell makes land in Rio Grande, South Brazil, 15 weeks after leaving the wreck of the wager, having covered an incredible 2,000 miles in an open boat with 30 survivors. So they did make it. I'm impressed. I didn't think they were going to. You honestly don't. You're like, well, they're gone. And I'm like, oh, 30? 30 survivors? I mean, of 81, not great. But not all of those 81 died. Some of them got left. (laughs) But that's still very impressive. Yeah. Especially with only 12 days worth of food. Kudos. They did pick up a few more rations along the way, but it didn't quite balance out. And I think picked on some bodies. Probably. Here the survivors split again, with three men getting passage on the Stirling Castle back to England. And on New Year's Day, 1743, they return. Aww. It's not bad innings for a journey, actually. After making land, one of the survivors, Lieutenant Baines, who's actually the one that Cheap goes, Oh, Captain Baines, is it? Ah, well, uh, please give him his correct title, Alex. (laughs) 
you're very much on team cheap here, which is strange considering he shot a man in the face. I found that funny. <laughs> well, Baines is in the captain's bad books. What a surprise. Would you say that he's a bane of Captain Cheap? He's very annoying because of the whole <laughs> mutiny thing. So Baines rushes off to tell tales to the Admiralty. Because, of course, these guys are going to be the only survivors, right? They want to look in the best light. And it's not like anyone else is going to turn up to be able to say anything different, hey, is it? <laughs> Who next? Back to Wager Island? Or... The Abandoned Eight. Ooh. Um, Wager Island. Proving it's not pre-done, because I have to scroll down to Wager Island. Back to the island. Captain Cheap, Mr. Hamilton of the Marines, and Mr. Elliot the Surgeon have been left behind on Wager Island. And while they have been given some provisions, it's hardly expected by anyone that there are going to be survivors. However, who is this sailing over the horizon? We have a small crew of nine deserters. Ah, of course. These include Alexander Campbell and John Byron. They're sailing back to join the captain. And a few of those original deserters, back way when the wager first crashed. Oh, the ones who stayed on the ship to get drunk. And the ones that once they made land were like, fuck this shit, we're out. Yeah. They're also found. And they agreed to join their commander. Ah, oh, it's a nice reunion. So we're up to 20 on Wager Island and we now have two boats. We have the barge and the yawl. It's better than nothing, but they're not exactly in good repair, especially because the carpenter is one of the mutineers. Ah. But still, they've acquired more men and boats than they began with. Exactly. The plan is still to sail north, in the boats, and capture a Spanish vessel. Yeah! Now, by this point, surely there is no hope that they're going to catch up with Anson, but this is the plan. They are going north. Nothing is going to stop them. They're going north. Aim high, you know. They hang around for a few months because the weather's bad. They maroon men for stealing food, who then die of exposure. And then, when they eventually attempt to head north in the December of 41, it goes pretty poorly. In fact, the yawl is lost and a man is drowned. Ah. It's then established that there's just not enough room in the barge for all of the survivors. And, well... This was a melancholy thing, but necessity compelled us to it, and as we were obliged to leave some behind us, the marines were fixed on as not being of any service on board. <laughs> it is probable that all met with a miserable end. Wow, that's very caring. It always seems to be the marines that get left behind in these things. It's especially noteworthy at this point, because, not to get too technical about it, these aren't royal marines. Okay. These are just... Marines, they're under a different command structure. They're just blokes. They're just some random chaps. I see. Not quite, <laughs> but they are held separately to the Royal Navy. They're not your mates. Also the case with the Royal Marines, but... The Royal Marines are at least royal. If you're interested in the history of the Royal Marines, this case is a pivotal moment in when the Navy start thinking, oh shit, we should probably do something about the Royal Marines. Okay. That's fun. But now we're down to 14. And it's decided that they're going to go back to Wager Island to die. I'm not kidding either. For we expected to die at Wager Island looking on that place which we had been so much used to as a kind of home. Oh, so this is the 14 Marines? No, this is... Oh, sorry. Yeah, the Marines, they've just chucked off. They're like, no, you four, you're useless and sickly, you go there. Bye. And then they decide that after all that faff, actually, they're not going to go and they're going to turn home. Yes. Got you. They don't find the Marines 
Did they even try to find the Marines? Probably not. But they're now down to 12. Cheap continues to be not a team player, even as the men were, quote, obliged to eat their shoes. They were of seal skin, and they were at that time a very great dainty. Hmm. Cheap is noted for his cruelty. He and the surgeon ate it, some boiled seal, without offering a bit to any one of us. It actually seems very likely that the survival of any of those left behind on the island was due to the arrival of a group of the Chono people who agreed to guide them overland in exchange for the barge. Okay. The overland journey takes another four months and the men are worked very hard. The majority of them are worked to death. Ten men die of starvation, including the surgeon, who was a very strong, active young man who had, and I think this is an understatement, gone through an infinite deal of fatigue. (laughs) Well, obviously it was finite because... (laughs) You're so mean to this crew. (laughs) Just to the um, style of narration. Not your style of narration. (laughs) The style of narration from whoever our narrator is. Now... I'm not sure that you're prepared for just how Bills and Boone ready Captain Poundland Cheap has gotten by this stage. I also do note that anyone outside of the UK, Poundland probably sounds like a euphemism anyway. Oh. (laughs) It's a shop where everything is a pound and therefore very cheap. Yes, that was the joke. It's not sexual. (laughs) Although, well, Carmela, wait until you hear this description of Captain Cheap before you say that. Okay. His beard was as long as a hermit's and his face covered with train oil and dirt from having long accustomed himself to sleep upon a bag by the way of pillow in which he kept the pieces of stinking seal. Sexy. Yes. <laughs> Poundland cheap. No wonder he was so popular with the men. Moving on, Professor Chimina Obina of the Chilean Academy of History says that the rescue of the survivors by the Chono people was most likely calculated, that they'd learned of the wreck and knew of the value of British prisoners to the Spanish. Ooh, smart. And also knew of the literal value of loot that could be seized. Yeah, find his keepers. I mean, that's the ethos that Europeans had going to South America, so... After all, after making land at Chilioe Island, the four survivors were handed over to Spanish authorities and spent two years as prisoners of war. Hamilton and Cheap are treated quite well. They're both of the officer class. Yes, yes. Even when you hate someone's nation, you can still be classist at the same time. You respect good breeding, goddammit. Exactly. But the non-officers, Byron and Campbell, were jailed. The locals came to point and laugh at them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even exaggerating there. People paid the jailers so they could come and look at, quote, the terrible Englishman. (laughs) Not quite the annoying the Spanish they thought they were going to be doing. Well, back in the day before TV or the internet, where else were you going to see Englishmen? (laughs) Were you going to go to England? I don't think so. Why would you? (laughs) But apparently, these terrible Englishmen were so pitiful (laughs) that they were put out on parole. Now, Campbell would get out of this sticky situation by, shock horror, converting to Catholicism. (gasps) He, quote, of course left us. Wow, that bastard. And then he would later disappear. However, eventually the three survivors, Cheap, Hamilton and Byron, would make it back to England, Dover, in the April of 1745. That's quite a bit later than the others, right? Yeah, about two years. After the imprisonment, yeah. 
But now we have one more gang to go back to. Freshwater Cove gang. The Abandoned Eight. We're going back in time to the December of 1741. And they are, unsurprisingly, not very happy. They have been abandoned by their fellow mutineers and definitely don't believe in the bad weather excuse. But they do have dogs and horses and fresh water. Oh, just wait. Just wait with the dogs. Quote, The most probable reason we could give for such inhumane treatment was that by the lessening the number of their crew, they might be better accommodated with room and provisions. I think that's probably exactly what happened. Methinks we can all agree. However, the eight of them do try and make the best of it. As we've said, while the coast is uninhabited by people, there is seemingly plenty to subside on. Seals, freshwater, armadillos. I'm sorry to say they also subsided a little on the docks. It happens. A lot. The men know that it is 300 miles overland to Buenos Aires. However, they're nowhere near strong enough to make that walk yet. So instead, they play house. They take up quarters on the beach till we should grow strong enough to undergo the fatigue of a journey. That makes sense. It's all very ingenious. They make knapsacks out of seal skin. They have some ammunition. They were actually given real supplies, which almost implies a level of guilt. They have muskets. They go hunting. They set up a little house. They find puppies and tame them to help them hunt. They all have their their little squad of puppies. It's adorable. These dogs do not get eaten. Yay! Just the other dogs get eaten. The other dogs. They build a hut. They have plans to raise pigs. Things are going quite well until the August of 1742, when two of their party go missing. Hmm. And two more are murdered with their home being wrecked. This appears to have been done by Telhuchi nomads. After this, four survivors are taken prisoner by a different Telhuchi party and they were, quote, bought and sold four different times for a pair of spurs, a brass pan, ostrich feathers and such like trifles. (laughs) The value of Brits, huh? How much for this annoying man? I'll give you an ostrich feather and a spur. Just the one. Just one. They're not worth more than that. (laughs) Eventually, however, Kangapul, a Chaltuchi Kakik, a.k.a. a king, he learns that these are Englishmen and are at war with the Spanish and aren't actually Spaniards themselves. And because the Telhuchi also hate the Spanish, this means their treatment improves just a little. Ah. However, after a few, well, years... They convince Kangapul that they, quote, had English friends in Buenos Aires who would make him a very handsome satisfaction for us and who would redeem us at any price. So he agrees to ransom the men. Well, three of them. One of them, John Duck. Hey, that's a good name. Who I wish was in this story more because what a name. John Duck is mixed race, and this is the reason that's allegedly given that Kangapol won't part with him. Okay. This is what the sources say. We know that only three of them are allowed to return. Draw your own conclusions. Yeah, not sure I fully understand the logic behind this, but okay. The other three are ransomed for $270. Each or together? Oh, together. It's a bargain price. Three annoying men for the price of one. (laughs) And then, guess what? They're imprisoned by the Spanish in Buenos Aires as prisoners of war. (laughs) At least they're on prisoner rations as opposed to starvation ones. Yeah. But it's still not all that good for the survivors, to be honest. They're working as prisoners of war on the Spanish ship the Asia. But they are in for a surprise. There's a brief indigenous uprising on the Asia where 11 of the indigenous crew managed to kill 20 of the Spanish 
and briefly take over control of the ship. Oh, that's eventful. Before then being defeated. Mm. But it was a bit of excitement. Yeah, something to do. But they're in for a bit more excitement. Because they're joined by another wager survivor. Oh. Alexander Campbell. Campbell has a surprisingly nice time of it, in contrast to the other men. He gets to dine with the captains of the Spanish fleet while his old friends are prisoners. Interesting. Finally, however, the abandoned eight, now three, and Campbell make it to Spain. Again, there's a slight hitch. The three are once again imprisoned and Campbell goes off to Madrid. But after four months, the three survivors are released to Portugal and are then able to make their way to England. It's now July 1746. The latest of all. The latest of all. Now, just to wrap this up, Alexander Campbell makes it back to England in 1746 and is promptly dismissed from the Navy for being a Catholic. Well, yeah. And for allegedly serving with the Spanish military. Yeah, I was going to say, what was he doing all that time? It's pretty obvious that this is in fact what he was doing. Yeah. I mean... Smart. A traitor to king and country, but... Yeah. Playing the game. They probably gave him food. (laughs) Precisely. So... All of our main players are back in England. Or dead. No more survivors, I'm afraid. Although it is pretty impressive so many of them made it back at all, especially so scattered across South America. Yeah, and those dribs and drabs. But now it's time for consequences. Oh, those. Well, sort of. We've encountered before that mutiny is worse than cannibalism. Yes, mutiny's bad. Cannibalism's fine. And to be fair, even when men have made it back to England and there's a court-martial, it seems like the Admiralty is just so worried about what the impact of what this mutiny could have been that they just pretend it didn't happen. Okay. Baines, who was the first one to give his account, is pretty much the only man to get a telling off. (laughs) And that's not for doing a mutiny. That's for not warning Captain Cheap when he didn't see land. The land that the wager crashed into. Oh, okay, right, I see. Even though he didn't see it, he should have still told Cheap. Right, yes, got you. What's also connected is the fact that if Cheap doesn't accuse anyone of doing a mutiny, then hopefully no one will accuse him of doing a murder of Cozen's. Yeah, yeah, it won't come up. Because he definitely did do a murder. Well, I mean... He shot a man in the face. He shot him in the face and then he died 14 days later. Who can say, you know, whether... He wouldn't allow him to have any medical treatment. Whether those two events were connected or not. Correlation is not causation. (laughs) Because mutiny is definitely the worst thing, the cannibalism just doesn't even get mentioned no one really gets punished at all good for them annoying for us a happy ending question mark the main source for this story was the suitably named the wager disaster which of all people has a foreword from prince philip oh so it's safe to say that the royal family do know about survival cannibalism Now, that's not slander, that's just pure fact. Well, I think they know about it from other sources, I'm sure. That's slander. (laughs) Now, we're ending on one of the survivors, one of the main sources who I've been quoting, a young 16-year-old midshipman called John Byron. Oh, yes, you mentioned him earlier, and I was like, Byron, like the poet, but probably not. Now, this isn't the first time that that name has come up, is it? We did have a cousin of Byron in a different case. During the Francis Mary. Mm. But that's not the case with this Byronic connection. They're not cousins. 
This is his grandfather. Oh, wow. See, earlier I was going to say, oh, I wish I had said, oh, Byron again. Curses. You think of all the Byrons to have a brush with cannibalism, it would be mad, bad and dangerous to know. But no, no. This John Byron, later in his naval career, is even tasked with finding the Northwest Passage. Oh, well, he clearly doesn't achieve it. He doesn't even try. He just fucks off from that command and doesn't even attempt it. That's very smart. A wise, wise man who has already had a brush with survival cannibalism. In fact, it was Byron who wrote about the cabin boy who has put that liver down. Stop chewing on that liver. Spit that liver out. Drop it. Drop it. So he has definitely had his brushes with survival cannibalism. However, his grandfather's shipwreck clearly impacted the young, humble Lord George Byron, who would go on to milk it for all it was worth. Oh, yeah. Writing to his sister that, reversed for me our grandsire's fate of yore, he had no rest at sea, nor I on shore. (laughs) And Byron even draws from life in Don Juan, whose hardships, now this is bad, whose hardships were comparative to those related in my granddad's narrative. (laughs) Dickhead. (laughs) But we will end with a reading from Don Juan itself. Oh, yes, please. Because we really need to round this episode off with a bit more actual survival cannibalism. And Lord George, your time to shine. As in Canto 2 of the epic poem, Don Juan is in a bit of a sticky situation. After seven days at sea in a dreadful storm, well, I'll let him tell it. Poetry reading with Alex. (laughs) At length one whispered his companion who whispered another and thus it went round, and then in a hoarsome murmur grew an ominous and wild and desperate sound. And when his comrades thought each suffering knew, Twas but his own, suppressed till now he vowned. And out they spoke of lots for flesh and blood, And who should die to be his fellow's fud food. (laughs) The rhymes aren't great here, Byron. The lots were made and marked and mixed and handed, In silent horror and their distribution Lulled even the savage hunger which demanded like promethean vulture this pollution none in particular had sought or planned it twas in nature gnawed them to this resolution by which none were permitted to be neuter and the lot fell on one's luckless tutor (gasps) the sailor ate him all save three or four who were not quite so fond of animal food to these was added one who before Refusing his own spaniel hardly could feel now his appetite increased much more. Twas not to be expected that he should, even in the extremity of their disaster, dine with them on his pastor and his master. Hey! <laughs> You're welcome. That's good, thanks. <laughs> so that was HMS Wager, aka. Hardly any cannibalism at all. Who'd have thought that the Daily Mail lies in its reporting? (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's episode on the HMS Wager. Well, whenever you go to sea, you're always taking a gamble, I guess. (sighs) I held that in the whole episode. Join us next time as we wrap up the season with... Some more fun on boats. Casting Lots Podcast can be found on Twitter. Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast.
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmela, with post-production and editing also by Carmela and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at TallestFriend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett. Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network.